This is Thinking Freely with the ACLU of Maryland, the show that talks about what's happening politically in Maryland from the courts to the streets. I'm your host, Amber Taylor. As the nation continues to re-examine the legal justice system and policing, one area that has been brought into the spotlight and caused heated debate is the role of school police in our children's schools. While there is no reliable evidence that school police keep students and educators safer, there is a growing amount of evidence that school police negatively impact the lives and education of thousands of Black and Latinx students and students with disabilities. School police disproportionately arrest Black students across the state of Maryland, according to data from the Maryland State Department of Education from the school year 2018 to 2019. Nationally, Black children are 2.4 times more likely to receive a school-related arrest than white children. In Maryland, that number jumps to three times more likely. Look, we all want to keep students safe. However, we also need to make sure that students are allowed to make mistakes and learn from them as they grow. Without the daily fear of being thrown into the school-to-prison pipeline, the mistakes children make can and should be handled differently. We need counselors, therapists, and behavioral specialists to address students' needs and foster their growth. We should invest in this child-focused, restorative approach instead of police in schools. As we reimagine policing in our communities, the evidence is clear. We don't need cops in our schools. Today, We'll talk to Erica Strauss-Chararia, a teacher in Howard County, Amity Pope, a teacher in Prince George's County, along with Monisha Chirao from the Public Justice Center to talk about the role of school police, how we can better protect student safety and their rights, and help as we continue to reimagine an educational system that finally breaks the school-to-prison pipeline. Welcome, everyone. Thank you so much for being on this episode of Thinking Freely. We're really excited to have this important discussion about school police and, more importantly, why we need to have police-free schools. Monisha, I wanted to start off the conversation with you. What is school resource officer, and are there are there really any different from regular police officers? And then also, I wanted to ask you about like the school-to-prison pipeline and just explain to people who may not be familiar with that term what it is. So simply put, a school resource officer is a police officer. These are sworn law enforcement with the authority and the obligation to conduct arrests and in almost every Maryland school district carry firearms as well. And like all police, their defining duty is to enforce the law. They patrol a beat, in this case, a school building, viewing their surroundings through the lens of the criminal code. So if they see kids fighting the locker room, they see an assault. If they see a child grabbing her friend's jacket and coloring on it to mess around, they see malicious destruction of property. If they see horseplay in the hallway, they see criminal disruption of the educational process. These are, by the way, real examples of students arrested by school police in our state. And it is true that in Maryland, school police are required to receive training beyond what they learned in the police academy, but it is minimal. A one week survey course in topics like disability and LGBTQ awareness and de-escalation. This doesn't make them into a counselor or a social worker who receive years of education in these topics. And it doesn't change their basic job, which is again, to enforce the law. As for the school to prison pipeline, That's the set of policies and practices that systematically push children, particularly black and brown children and children with disabilities out of school and into the juvenile and criminal systems. In Maryland, 56% of our school-based arrests target black students, even though black students are only about a third of our student population and there are no differences in behavior across race. Regular police presence in schools is a major driver of that pipeline. When an officer arrests a student, he is literally pulling the student out of class to attend meetings with DJS, appear in court, potentially be detained and incarcerated. Research has shown 
that childhood arrests make it substantially more likely that a student will ultimately drop out of school, which itself increases the probability that the student will be unable to secure gainful employment and become involved with the criminal system as adults. One study actually found a 22 percentage point difference in graduation rates among public school students who faced arrest versus those who didn't, but otherwise shared the same characteristics. And in Maryland, schools with officers are where many of our young people are getting arrested. We had over 3,100 school-based arrests in 2018-19, the last year for which we have data, the vast majority by school police. And preliminary data shows that when schools physically closed last March because of COVID, we saw a 44% decline in juvenile arrests statewide. Adult arrests dropped during the shutdown as well, but not by as much. And some of the greatest declines in juvenile arrests were in places where we know school officers are particularly aggressive. Charles County, for example, saw a 73% drop. It appears that a significant contributor to these double-digit declines is that kids were no longer at school, so they weren't getting arrested at school. Thank you for that. Um, that's a really great frame for this conversation. And then the next thing I wanted to ask you, um, to ask uh, actually Erica, um, you know, in, in continuation of that theme, you've been an educator for quite some time. Can you talk to us about when you saw the rise in the presence of school police, particularly in your school? Yes. Um, so I've actually, um, I actually teach at the same school that I graduated from. Um, I teach at a school in Howard County. And when I was a student, uh, my freshman year in 1996, there was a very um, uh, difficult fight in the middle of the school. Um, some students from another school had come to start a conflict with some students at our school. And a teacher who happened to have heart problems and who, should, who was warned not to overstress his heart jumped in the middle of the fight uh, as he should not have done. Um, and he ended up uh, he ended up having a heart attack and died um, in the middle of the hallway with all of the students watching. Um, of course, the students who were involved in that fight were partially blamed, um, or at least had the, the, the weight of his death on their shoulders. They were all expelled from school, um, and actually, unfortunately, none of those uh, girls ever were able to do much with their lives. Um, it had a huge impact, the entire situation, on their trajectory through life. Um, that is the first time that I saw an SRO. Um, it was actually because of that fight at my school that they, um, that they decided to start an SRO program in my county. Um, my school has always been and continues to be, uh, they used to call it the most diverse school, but diverse really is just a code word for majority black and brown. Um, and since then, as a teacher, I started teaching 10 years ago. Um, I have seen an increase in school police almost every year. Um, occasionally in past years, we've seen up to five to eight police officers just roaming our hallways. Um, it literally looks like a prison. Sometimes we have three different floors, um, all kind of circulating around the main hallway. And so uh, it looks like prison guards guarding their floor uh, in, a, in a prison. Um, but we know that, you know, school shootings, um, after each school shooting, it adds more of a justification for there to be police in schools, or at least that's what they claim. Um, they claim that police are there to uh, prevent school shootings, to jump in in case of a school shooting, to keep the school safe. And so every time that we've seen uh, a, yet another rise in the presence of police, it's usually following a major school shooting. Um, the first one that we saw, one of the major rises in school police was after Columbine. Um, and every, every shooting thereafter just uh, continued or continued the rise of police in school. Um, if you look historically, we know that that police were actually originally put into schools um, during the 60s when uh, Chicano or Mexican-American students and black students were protesting and doing walkouts um, starting in East LA, but it spread throughout the country. And police were actually put into schools to suppress, oppress, and actually 
um, physically harm, uh, brutalize students. You can see footage of this if you search for it online. There have been documentaries and movies made about it. Um, and so, you know, we have seen school resource officers from their beginning um, always intentionally being put into schools that are um, black and brown schools, majority black and brown, with the intentional purpose of doing harm um, or suppressing or oppressing black and brown students. And that is something that is still occurring today. Um, as we know, the, the majority of the police that we see across the country are in schools that have majority black and brown populations. And, and Erica, and actually this question goes for both Erica and Amity, you know, what do you think has been the impact, um, particularly on your students by having these school police officers in schools? Right, like you, you mentioned, it was if, like it looks like a prison. Like, what do you think has been like the impact that students are receiving from these um, school police officers? The the response is that um, is the opposite from what you hear from uh, you know pro SRO advocates um, that they my students feel less safe when there is a uh, with the presence of an SRO um, for many reasons. One, um, just the presence, the mere presence of an officer already. Um, brings a level of unease, of, of trauma, of fear. Um, all you have to do is, you know, look outside uh, in, in the world and see what, you know, the relationship is like between police departments and police officers and uh, black and brown communities, um, looking at the history of relationships between police officers and black and brown communities. And so just the mere presence of a police officer already makes my students feel less safe. Um, they already feel criminalized. They already feel like they're being, um, you know, monitored uh, and policed just by having a police officer in school. Um, we know, and, and you, I know from speaking to my students, that they feel like the officer um, that they've had in the past, um, you know, definitely are biased in who they are following, searching. Um, if, you know, if a student walks in, if, if, if a bunch of students walk into the school and there's a scent of marijuana, um, they automatically will, you know, start searching black students, but white students never get touched, never get looked at when, um, when in fact, many times it is the white students that are the ones that are bringing the drugs in or smelling like weed or whatever the case may be. Um, and so they, they have a sense of, of being criminalized before they even walk in the school building, knowing that there's a police officer in the building waiting for them. Um, they know also, uh, you know, that, that that their actions as teenagers, as, you know, age-appropriate um, behaviors where students are learning how to handle their emotions, they're learning how to handle their conflicts, um, that, you know, in the, in the end, with the presence of an SRO who is required to enforce the law, the same job that they do on the streets is the job that they do in the school. Um, and the same mentality that they have on the streets is the same mentality that they have in the school. Which is to, um, which is to enforce the law, and so my students feel very uneasy knowing that any mistake that they make is going to be police, and that they are subject to arrest. They are subject to a charge that can affect them for the rest of their lives. They're subject to being, uh, you know, in contact with the criminal justice system at a very young age and having to go to court, um, and you know, having to fill out that bubble on that college application if that's their, you know, desire to go to school or their job application or whatever their future holds, um, but we know that our students, and I know that my students, feel less safe uh, with an officer in the building, um, especially one that's carrying a gun, a badge, and it's not just ability, but the requirement to enforce the law um, when, you know, they are just children. Um, try, that we're, it should be a place of safety and learning, uh, not criminalization. So, you know, I just echo what Erica just my experiences with students and at the onsite of seeing officers um, is exactly, it's very similar to what Erica just mentioned about the re-traumatization of students and these students that have adverse childhood experiences um, already coming into the building. It just heightens it and it triggers and create anxiety, worsens their medical conditions, their health conditions, um, and, and students react and respond very differently, um, just like people react and respond very differently to anxiety, stress, et cetera. There is an action and then there's a reaction. 
and the action is officers are present and their badges with their guns and their loud radios and their uniforms and their poker face um you know um just very stoicness walking up and down hallways sometimes with dogs um and barking out of cages out front of car um out front of the school building and in every single moment that those things are happening, um, there is a reaction from children, adults, but specifically your conversation is about children. And so those different security measures re-traumatize students. And our students with adverse childhood experiences that show up each and every day um, with a backpack uh, of experiences that maybe no one else actually knows about those traumas get triggered and the reactions happen in a variety of ways. But nonetheless, those reactions that happen typically then become criminalized from a behavior that is a reaction to an environmentally stressed um, like condition, right? So I would just, at that, you know, that is um, that is something that that's a health that's a health issue. This is a medical issue for children. Thank you for sharing that. It's, it's a sad thing we have to to talk about this. Um, actually, my next question is is for you, Amity. Um, why why do you think there is a willingness to invest in school um, police when? you know, we're not investing this the same level of resources in nurses or mental health um, staff or counselors um, when it comes to school, particularly when it comes to addressing behavioral issues. Um, I, I would say the quick answer is because it's easier. It's, it's just easier. It's easier for people to not see people as people and not engage with them as people and not become knowledgeable about the situations um, under the guise of uh, making things safe. Um, I mean, when I think about the department, the State Department of Education, this period, um, you know, their purpose and their existence um, is to develop and implement standards and policies for education programs. And education was created to not actually produce critical thinkers and, and such. Education is created as a way to produce workers and um, passive um, members of society. However, as we've developed as a global technologically like savvy um, marketplace, like in, in our entire society, um, We've, we've changed the narrative <laughs> of the purpose. I assert we've changed the narrative of the purpose of education, public education to be specific, specific. So we've changed the narrative of public education to be specific. And in that changing the the, the, the reason for public education and those that maybe want to fulfill on that initial reason for public education, similar to like how Black Codes became existent um, back in the Jim Crow era um, as a guide to say that, you know, we would suffer but equal. Um, it could be a way of, um, reinforcing that dominant narrative that is supposed to um, like reign supreme over all. And what I mean by that um, is it takes something to actually allow children, our black and brown children and other children of color, and I would add poor white, it really takes something to see them as human beings 
that deserve to live freely, that deserve the rights that any other resident or occupant on this planet Earth deserves, um, but it may be seen as a threat. And so to keep that threat managed, um, we conduct this, this all-out massive um, mass incarceration of sorts, these security measures in our public schools that have that environment pull for early juvenile detention um, detainees, early criminal justice um, detainees, um, early dropouts to increase the uh, capacity of our privately owned prisons. Um, it's just easier. It's easier to put a cop in there than to really um, make that whole child occur as whole to themselves and others. Thank you, Amity, for that. Um, it's what you are describing is the problem that we've been dealing with, frankly, for centuries. So um, it's a sad that's nothing new, but I, I hope that this will, as we you know are talking about it and pointing out the systemic problems, um, that things will be ho hopefully will start to change. So Erica, my um, next question is actually for you. A common issue that we get is that many of the school police officers in Maryland are people of color and are often black men who are many times the ones arresting black and brown children. Can you talk a bit about the, some of the systemic um, issues at play and how it's, it's not just a simply a uh, white versus black issue um, or, or, or simply just like an interpersonal racist issue? I hear that a lot. It's the same argument I hear from teachers, right? Um, you know, that, that it's not just white teachers that are um, manifesting their biases or their, um, you know, up their uh, mindset uh, in the classroom in a way that harms students. Um, so regardless of, you know, the background of the officer, they are still working for a system that is inherently part of white supremacy structure and part of white supremacy power that leads this country. And so whether or not you're attempting to be a good apple, right, in the crop of police, um, you're still required to enforce the law and do your job. It doesn't matter if you're black or you're white or you're Hispanic or you're Asian or whatever the case may be, the memorandum of understanding, and I'll use Howard County for example, the number one purpose for police officers uh, in schools for SROs is to enforce the law. It is the first and foremost purpose of the uh, written in the memorandum of understanding. And so, when you ha you know when you put officers that you know look like the students. It gives students this false, or it may um, give students this false sense of, all right, well, maybe they're not, you know, maybe that person's not going to treat me, you know, or harm me, right? Um, and maybe they do, or maybe that officer is able, because they are a black male, to build a better relationship with a student than a white officer. But at the end of the day, a cop is a cop is a cop. And they may be your, you know, Ha ha, buddy! In the hallway, one second, and then the next second, they have you slammed to the ground with handcuffs on. Um, and so, you know, to me, it's it's about the system and the structure um, as a whole, and the fact that that we live in a police state, um, and that black and Latino officers are just as guilty of police brutality and and murder of unarmed black people. Um, as you know, I would well maybe not just as guilty, but they're in the same system as white officers, and so they're trained the same, they're brainwashed the same, um, they're made to think the same, they're taught the same techniques of shoot first, think later, aim to kill. They're not taught to shoot for the leg, right? They're taught to shoot to kill, um, and all of them are covered by qualified immunity. So, regardless, 
you know, that's why officers are never held accountable to the crimes that they commit against humanity. Um, and so, you know, I think that unfortunately, what I've seen is that, you know, sometimes you have this dynamic where because it's a black officer, especially a black male police officer, that the students, um, you know, initially may think, okay, maybe this person won't harm me. Um, but then they very quickly see at the end of the day that the police officer is there to do the job of a police officer, regardless of the color of their skin. Um, and unfortunately, also what I've seen is that there have been students that have, um, you know, maybe built up a, a semi-positive relationship with an officer um, and then have this false sense of hope and optimism when they go, you know, out onto the street. Um, and, uh, and, and then, you know, the next week are, you know, sitting on the side of the curb while the cops are searching their car. I and mean, this is a real story. They were part of a, um, you know, a let's get to know the police force and let's build relationships. And they sat through this presentation and, you know, built up this sense of possible optimism and, you know, hope for, you know, a relationship. And then the next week um, and the week thereafter, so twice in two weeks, um, found themselves in a very scary and terrifying situation where they were um, essentially brutalized by police, uh, pulled out of their cars, sitting on the side of the road, handcuffed, worried, um, you know, searched and and uh, traumatized. And so at the end of the day, a cop is a cop is a cop, and they're there to enforce the law, period. So as difficult as it is for Black people in particular, to um, con confront, it's an implicit bias assessment, um, and they've done a lot of different assessments with um, young black um, school age girls and boys, and with Barbie dolls, black Barbie dolls or white Barbie dolls. Parents watching their children participate in this experiment are usually stunned. Um, the black parents, that is, because their child. Um, is shown, it's videotaped, right, and all consent, um, that their child prefers picking the white doll over the black doll. And so um, in reading about that, um, that study years ago, um, it, you know, it just really, it, it, it's important to, I feel like, to acknowledge that uh, racism seen as that, that social phenomenon it doesn't only happen to Black people, but it happens through Black people, and Black people in particular, because there, is, there are constant media um, images, all forms, right, that flood the psyche daily, minute by minute, second by second, of the negative associations um, of Black people and black culture through the dominant narrative like media outlets like Fox and et cetera, right? <laughs> and so individuals that um, are, are unable to bracket what's happening in their unconscious conscious space, they began to perpetuate stereotypes of black criminality um, while uplifting the white culture that has for centuries <laughs> um, has been that actual culture that has denied them any form of freedom. And so it actually answers that question as to these are black officers arresting black kids. It's more than that to just, what is it, meets the eye. Thank you for that additional context. I think that, that was really important. And actually, Monisha, I'd like you to, to speak a little bit about this, but particularly about the some of the systemic racial problem of policing, and in particular how this like intersects with the school to prison pipeline, right? Um, and, and how, you know, this is surprising how it, it, how it intersects. Sure. So building on what we just heard, the issue here is not, for the most part, about school police officers being racist individuals at the personal level. 
right? Instead, there are structural systemic factors at play. Studies tell us that majority black schools are more likely to have police officers and more officers and security guards than mental health professionals as compared to majority white schools. So because police are more frequently assigned to patrol schools with mostly black students, even an officer who harbors no conscious racial prejudice, whether he's black or white or another race, is more likely to witness or to be called to the scene when black kids get into a fight or otherwise grew up in the very same ways as white children. In majority white schools, which are likely to have more social workers or counselors or supportive adults generally, these are the folks who respond and de-escalate and counsel and take preventative action rather than arrest. And as Amity pointed out, implicit bias is also understood as a force underlying how we see and how we treat one another. All of us, whatever our race, are, are primed by the society we lived in, live in to see black kids as more dangerous or to not see them as kids at all when they make mistakes, even when they're doing the very same things that their white peers are doing. And that too is a reality that contributes to the disproportionate arrest of black children, disproportionate suspension and expulsion and other disciplinary exclusions of our black children, all of which together drive that school to prison pipeline that we talked about. And actually, Amity, I did want to ask you, like, you know, what do you think some of the impacts have been, particularly on, um, you know, uh, black, black, black and brown students, right? Um, you know, we talked about this a little bit more, but I wanted to, I wanted to ask it in a more direct way. So I would say directly black and brown students, um, this sends the message to them that they don't matter. They don't matter, their voice doesn't matter. No one cares about them, no one's listening to them. And it, there has been very little research um, done, but there has been research done that there's, a, there's definitely a relationship between increased dropout rates and the degree to which how many school resource officers are in their buildings or just their entire environment is um, pretty toxic in the form that it is heavily policed. And what I mean by that is there's security measures everywhere. So the gas station that they walk into has a bulletproof um, window and um, the the businesses that they um, walk into have bars on the doors. Um, this constant reminder that I'm not important, my voice doesn't matter, I'm dangerous, um, I don't belong here. Um, when we know that the child's brain does not fully develop um, until like the early 20s, right? Um, and generally speaking, these children seek refuge with peer groups. Uh, so everyone is having these same conversations. It literally, um, it literally opens the floodgates for the school to prison pipeline from the cognitive, um, mental um, aspect of that child developing. So when these children come to school and they see the same officers that have sexually assaulted their mother or father or sister or themselves in their apartment complexes, uh, behind their homes, raided their homes, um, or beat up a family member right in front of them. And they cross the threshold of the buildings every day where it's supposed to be safe. And people, the adults are supposed to be caring and loving. It tells them that they don't matter. And it tells them that they're criminals. It tells them that they're bad. And what happens when 
someone is abused mentally over and over again for a long period of time, they actually begin to fulfill that prophecy. And so that's what happens. Monisha, I, um, I also wanted to ask you about an, another group that um, often gets harmed in a disproportionate way um, and often gets overlooked um, when it comes to school police officers and students with disabilities. Can you talk a bit about how um, school police officers impact students, students with disabilities, both visible disabilities and also invisible disabilities as well? You're right, that students with disabilities are disproportionately likely to be arrested in school. Uh, so in Maryland, 23% of our school-based arrests target students with IEPs, special education plans, even though they're only 12% of the overall student population. And at the PGAC, we see in our work representing students that oftentimes students with disabilities are arrested for disability-related behavior itself behavior that's not violent, but might be outside of the accepted norms. So as one example, WBAL just aired a story about an arrest by a school police officer of an 11 year old with autism in Baltimore County. He'd gotten into an argument with another student and run off on the way to the, the principal's office. So staff took him to an empty room to calm down. And then he hit his head against a wall in that room, a behavior that's a symptom and a product of his autism, though not one that harmed anyone else. Now, rather than relying on this child's behavior plan, two minutes later, the school sent in the school police officer who handcuffed the child for 23 minutes while he was screaming and crying, causing him extreme emotional anguish and ultimately breaking a bone in his wrist. So special ed law gets that this is not what should be happening. It recognizes that some disabilities cause kids to act out and actually puts guardrails in place to ensure that children are not suspended for long periods or expelled on the basis of their disabilities. School police, as it turns out, are a workaround for this basic protection against disability-based discrimination. So even though a school principal could not suspend a child for any significant period for a behavior related to his disability, a school police officer can arrest that child, which has the very same impact of depriving the child of his education as a result of conditions and behaviors that he cannot control, while also pushing him into the juvenile or criminal system. Thank you for that. It's it's a sad thing that like so many people are impacted um, in in an effort as you know in name we try to keep students safe. And actually, Erica, I do want to ask you about you know what are some effective measures of keeping um, school safe? Like you know how how can we protect students um, while also not incarcerating them for you know childless mistakes? So. There are many things that we can do when we reimagine what safety looks like in schools. Um, we really need to do a shift in where we are investing resources and money. Um, instead of investing resources and money in um, punitive discipline um, and harmful uh, police presence in schools, we need to be redirecting that money towards community schools um, with health and healing services, wraparound services, um, with restorative justice, uh, full restorative justice implementation that is with fidelity, um, where healing and trauma-informed practices are at the center, um, where we have enough staff and enough mental health workers in our buildings to take care of our students um, who know how to um, who understand child development, understand age-appropriate behaviors, who are trained in how to de-escalate situations, um, who don't have a gun and a badge and the power to enforce the law. 
um, but are trained in how to de-escalate situations, even dangerous situations that involve weapons. And so these are all things that contribute to an environment where students actually feel safe as opposed to uh, this false perceived sense of safety from those who think that SROs um, are what keep a building safe. And Amity, you know, when when we remove school resource school resource officers from our children's schools, and I say when, not if, um, what do you think will be different? What do you think will be different for teachers and for students and for the school community as a whole? So when we remove law enforcement, school resource officers, people with guns and arresting powers from our public schools and our heavily populated, beautiful black and brown communities, uh, we get to reimagine children as children, like as human beings. Like we, re we get to reimagine what it's like to really like see that <laughs> this child, regardless of the color of their skin, is a child, is a human being. You know, we, we get to stop thinking of students as, as our Black students as these difficult problems and obstacles to get over or go through um, and, you know, replaced or removed, rather, um, before they affect the entire classroom. Um, you know, we will get to denounce the dominant narrative that school is all about grades and grades are all just going to determine um, your your life's ability um, post school. Um, I mean, the decolonization just so on target. Like we actually get to see, meet, feel, and um, you know, children see them as people, acknowledge them as humans who are filled with goals and dreams and ambitions and skills and experiences, um, concerns, fears, worries, emotional triggers, like they're human beings, you know? Um, and so we, we in, in denouncing that dominant narrative, um, we get to be proud that we are not continuing the uh, systemic racism through socializing um, of that narrative in the education system with the inaccurate um, ways of being and the ways that people have to, to show up in, in the world that is not the narrative with people of color, black people, brown people, indigenous people. Um, we get to actually breathe. That's what we'll be able to do in school. We'll get to actually breathe. Looking forward to that big collective sigh of relief and breath. But my next questions are actually for everyone. What do you think will be different when we focus more on positive behavioral methods to address problems in schools instead of relying on police? Or even if we got, you know, got rid of police officers from schools, not relying on incarceration um, in our education system to address behavior. I think that we forget that like students are going to go out into, you know, quote the real world, not that they're not already in the real world in school, but that like they are going to be contributors to a society. Um, and so if, if our methods of of, you know, to discipline literally means to teach. It doesn't mean to punish, right? Um, unfortunately, we live in a, in a highly criminal, uh, highly punitive society. We live in a law and order and police state. We live in this world where, where you know, our, this particular society that we live in um, thinks that, you know, you do the crime, you do the time, right? Like this is the mentality that has been a driving force in this country. And we are brainwashed into thinking that that is what it's supposed to be. That is the exact opposite 
of indigenous ways of thinking, right? And indigenous societies in that when, you know, instead of thinking about crime as you, you know, you did a crime, right? You're a criminal. Um, in many societies across the world that are, that are, you know, closer to their indigenous roots, you don't just throw people away in society. You don't just lock them up with a key and say you are no longer deemed a valued human being in our world. Um, in other societies, there is a emphasis on community, on building relationships with one another. In that when, in the end, when, you, when someone does something to somebody else, instead of viewing it as just a crime and you now need to go to jail, um, it's viewed as harm to a relationship or harm to a community. And in true restorative justice, it takes more responsibility for somebody or it takes more work and more inner work to take responsibility for the harm that you've done to somebody or to a community and then try to figure out how to repair that harm that has been done. Um, it takes more strength to do that than to never, to then for the, especially for a victim, to never have a say in what happens to the person who harmed them, right? Usually when crime happens in this country, the victim never even gets a chance to face the person that harmed them. They just have to, and that's not true justice for everybody. Um, and so, you know, in a world, in a, in a school system or in a world where we have rethought what community looks like and how we value human beings and how we, you know, how we want to treat people like human beings, instead of thinking of them as disposable, where we can just lock you up behind, you know, prison cell bars, um, to really come to, to this understanding of how, when we do something, it harms a community or it harms a relationship, and then having to come together to figure out how to repair that harm, and then being able to reintegrate that person back into the community, um, and to truly allow for that process to occur. That is not ingrained in the way that we operate in this country. And so I know that I would love to live in a society in which everybody is deemed a valuable person, and that you can, you can make mistakes and you know that you're not going to be disposed of. Um, you know that you're going to be loved still and that you will come, um, you know, that you will be able to face what you've done, to, to repair what you've done, and then to, um, to be reintegrated. And so if we start teaching those types of processes now or we start living that now um, in school when students are, you know, in the critical learning time and development of their brain, where they're either going to learn one direction or another, um, we can start a complete restructuring and culture shift in our world. And I agree with everything you're saying and that big vision you're laying out, Erica. And I just want to build on that by talking through, um, just in practical terms, a few very specific examples of non-police interventions that have been looked at, studied, and actually make schools safer for everyone. So as you explained, Erica, restorative approaches, it's all about investing time, skill, and building those trusting relationships um, in the case of schools, between students, among students and staff, so that, as you said, when, when tensions are brewing between two kids, they're more likely to reach out to staff uh, to help intervene and resolve before there's a fight and if that fight does happen, there's a mechanism um, for repairing a relationship and there's a relationship to prepare or rather to repair. And um, we've got some great recent data on this in Maryland, Baltimore City Schools invested a comprehensive, um, invested in a comprehensive restorative approach in several pilot schools and saw a 44% decline in suspensions in those schools with kids improved behaviors and less conflict. Another example, social emotional curriculum. This is all about treating character traits, not as inborn uh, characteristics, but rather skills to be learned. So it involves teaching kids to regulate their emotions, to develop empathy for others, to resolve conflicts. And again, where schools have implemented this curriculum alongside the math and the reading, we see measurable declines in kids resorting to 
physical or aggressive responses when they confront, confront a problem. And the final example I'll offer, although it's again, just one of many, is trauma-sensitive practices. Uh, so we need to recognize that some kids lash out or hurt others because they themselves are hurting. They have experienced trauma, uh, whether because of um, addiction in their family or homelessness or economic hardship or witnessing violence in the community, they get triggered and have a natural built-in response of then um, perhaps lashing out at others, right? And a trauma-sensitive approach, which requires staff-wide training, access to school-based mental health services, helps to mitigate that fight or flight response, right? Um, we give them tools to calm themselves, to seek help. And that's why staff at schools that have adopted a trauma-informed approach have themselves reported feeling safer and feeling like their school was calmer once they went in that direction. And at the same time that we do employ all of these tested approaches, we make kids safer by not funneling them into a pipeline to prison, by keeping them in school where they belong. Imagine this, <laughs> if we focus on restorative practices, if we focus on giving the students those tools to um, do the things that we just heard, we actually get to invest in our communities, our economic in infrastructure. We get to actually have people be their best selves. Like it makes me think of as an educator, Maslow's like hierarchy of needs. And like Erica um, described her classroom, my classroom was like literally the same, the same way. Bean bags, bowl, you know, round tables, like everything, uh, food, et cetera. All the things that, um, you know, I wasn't supposed to have, but I actually did not care because what I cared about was not following compliance, um, I, I cared about meeting my students' needs, and that's how my students grew, and um, and that's when they were the happiest. And um, so we actually get to allow children to flourish into their the best version of themselves, which will have a reciprocal. Um, relationship on the communities that they engage with and those communities that engage with them. Thank y'all. Um, my last question, my last question for, um, for all y'all, what is your message to lawmakers or to parents who, you know, might be a little on the fence about this issue? What is your message to them to get them to, you know, to be in full support of um, removing school resource officers or Simply put, getting rid of cops in schools. You know, so I'll start um, because my message is really simple. Um, and I, I share this message unapologetically. For those individuals that support um, individual law enforcement, school resource officers, those individuals with arresting powers that support um, having these people in schools of predominantly black and brown students that are hearing the things that they're hearing now, that the, the research is out there, um, the stories are out there, the videos are out there. Um, and if they, if, for those people that support it, I don't believe there's a fence at all with all the research that's out there. But those individuals that support SROs in schools, are the same individuals that um, support um, the, the Black Code of the Jim Crow um, laws that, that they're still now, still happening now, not as, not as public, but definitely systemically. And uh, I would say, thank you for just selling your true self. 
um, so that, you know, myself and others that believe the way I believe, um, you know, it, it, it really just lays out the playing field for what we have to do to continue to organize, mobilize, and take action around um, abolishing systemic forms of oppression through policies, through legislation, and definitely through elections of local, local figures. So I'll just say I have two basic points that I think are critical for, for lawmakers and for parents to understand. First, school police don't make schools safer. I'm a parent of a, of a public school student and I absolutely get the desire to do everything possible to protect your child, especially when faced with news about horrific school shootings or other types of violence. And I get why some parents believe that school-based police reduce violence because that's the narrative we've been given. But the data just doesn't bear it out. As an initial matter, school shootings as devastating as they are are extremely rare. A child is more likely to be injured or killed when traveling to school or playing sports than in a shooting. And when the one in a million nightmare scenario does occur, police haven't been a solution. In a Washington Post study of over 200 school shootings, school police intervened successfully only in two. And other studies have found that police presence in schools have failed to achieve a measurable decline in any kind of school-based violence at all. So in 2018 in Maryland, in response to a, a shooting at Great Mills High School, the legislature scrambled in the waning weeks of the session to try to do something about school safety. What they came up with was the Safe Alert Act, which included some really misguided provisions. Safe to Learn required that all districts have either an SRO or an adequate law enforcement coverage plan for every single district. And they put the statute funded SROs at a sum of $10 million per year in state funds, and this is on top of the millions more spent at the local level uh, in on putting police in schools. And what Safe to Learn did was essentially push districts, many of which at this point did already rely heavily on, on school police to do so to an even greater extent. And it threw money at that particular model, even though, as you've heard, the model has failed to keep our kids safe. And it's actually made many of our kids less safe by funneling them into a pipeline towards prison for behaviors that are best dealt with in school and are the result of being children and still finding their way in the world. Every one of us wants to keep our kids safe, but school police simply haven't had that effect. And the second thing I'll say briefly is that we've got to recognize that the fond feelings that some have about school police are based on officers playing roles that others are far better positioned to play. It's true that some individual officers um, have mentored particular children or helped connect them with services in the community. And we, and we can acknowledge that. But when making policy decisions, we need to come back to the reality that a school police officer's fundamental job is to enforce the law, which includes arresting and investigating even the kids they mentor when those kids mess up. And in fact, we know, again, based on research, that school police spend most of their time on law enforcement, not on mentoring. If we want mentoring and, and counseling and wraparound services for our kids, and we, we do, we should, we need to invest in social workers and counselors, community school coordinators. We need to invest in restorative approaches um, and in decolonizing our classrooms, as my colleagues have been saying. 
these folks have the skills to support students and they're not compromised in their ability to do so by the basic functions of their job. So I, I think that, you know, my colleagues have said it quite well and I would exclamation point everything that I've heard. Um, the only thing I will add um, is that, is two things. Um, for those who have the performative Black Lives Matter signs and wear the Black Lives Matter shirts and go to the Black Lives Matter rallies and per, you know profess themselves as allies to the Black community, that means that you listen to what Black communities are demanding and you don't dictate or you don't have the right to say how the Black community achieves justice. And so if we have folks across this nation, in Black and Brown communities in particular, demanding that police are removed from schools because of the harms that occur to students, to BIPOC students and communities, if you claim to be an ally to Black, Indigenous, and other people of color, that means that you support what the demands are of those communities. And so do not wave your flag of Black Lives Matter and go to the rallies and profess your allyship if you then are questioning the validity of police in schools when all the data and what everybody is saying is that the harms outweigh any potential positive that an officer could have in a school building. So that's, only, that's one thing that I would add. And the second thing I would add is that what I've heard consistently from my Black students, and I teach 99% Black students, um, and what I hear consistently for them, this is what they say. We know that we are the, um, we are not the majority of students in this county or students in the nation. Um, we also know that we are disproportionately affected by policies and practices um, in, in all factors that lead to, the, to, to a pipeline to prison and in coming into contact with the juvenile justice system or injustice system um, and the effects of SROs. And so what they say is when will our voice matter? When will it matter what we have to say? Regardless of the fact that we are the smaller population in schools, we are overrepresented in the data. And when will it matter for our voices to be heard and for what we have to say to create actual change. And so for all these politicians and policymakers and school boards that their response continues to be, we need more data, we need more community conversations, we need more meetings, we need more this. The data is there, there needs to be no more conversations. If even one kid has been negatively affected by police presence, that should be an indicator that they need to go. Because if we say we're dedicated to anti-racism and we say we're dedicated to equity, then stop upholding the systems of white supremacy, such as having police in schools. And if you are dedicated to a system of restorative justice, if you are dedicated to taking, um, to really investing in restorative justice, having police in schools is the absolute, um, contradiction to restorative justice. Restorative justice does not include having police in schools and that we need to finally um, value the voices that are so often marginalized and, and, and suppressed um, and do the right thing. Do the right thing for our students and our communities and our families. So I was gonna say, you know, each one teach one. So you've heard um, from us, you know, three, you heard this information, you got it, however you got it, um, you know, however you received it. And um, if you believe like we believe, then I charge you with um, sharing this information with another and, 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 and request that they share it with another. That's how, you know, any real change happens. Um, and get involved in taking actions in your respective communities, join an organization um, that 
is pushing for the removal of SROs. Um, get involved or expand your level of capacity in local politics. And um, I am a co-founder of PG Changemakers. You can find us on any of our social media handles out here in this world. Um, if you want to get involved in something locally in uh, Prince George's County or, you know, within Maryland. Well said. Couldn't said any better myself is why um, I'm the host and I'm not the guest. <laughs> but thank y'all for so much for, for you know, being here tonight um, and, and talking with us um, about this really interesting topic. I, I learned a lot and a different perspective on the issue. And I hope our listeners did as well. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Thinking Freely. If you like Thinking Freely, make sure to leave a review and subscribe to us from wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about how you can join the efforts of over 80 organizations across the state of Maryland advocating for police-free schools, visit our website, aclu-md.org backslash policing. If you have questions or comments about the show, please send us an email with the email in the description or reach out to us on social media. We love to hear feedback from our listeners. The show was recorded at my house in Baltimore, Maryland, because guess what? There is still a pandemic and we are still practicing social distancing. It was also recorded on Piscataway Native American land. I'm Amber Taylor, the host and producer of Thinking Freely. Till next time.